Firefly Willows L.I.V.E. presents Evolve, featuring your host, Robin White-Turtle-Lisney. Hi, this is Robin White-Turtle-Lisney, and the show is Evolve. And today I have a special guest, Robin Hemley, who is the director of the Yale NUS program, or the National University of Singapore. And uh, he's come from the University of Iowa, as well as other schools where you've taught. Yeah, that's right. And um, uh, he's the author of 11 books, is that right? Something like that. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, has won Pushcart Prizes and Guggenheim Fellowships and has done um, quite an amazing, has had a, quite an amazing career. So I wanted to interview him because... I read recently your book, Reply All, and I just love the stories in it. And you do so many different things. You do um, creative, really nonfiction, you do fiction, you do uh, memoir. So I wanted to get into a conversation about all of these different things that you're doing. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I do write a lot of different things. I've always uh, felt that I shouldn't just have a kind of genre loyalty to one genre or another. My parents were both writers and um, you know my father was a poet and a novelist and a translator and a playwright and my mother was a short story writer and a novelist and a translator and you know they never said oh you have to be one thing uh, just be a writer. They didn't actually say it, be a writer. I think probably that was the last thing they'd want. <laughs> Yeah, so they were, um, they influenced you, obviously, because you do almost all of the above there, so. Yeah, yeah, they definitely did. Um, I, uh, I, from a very early age, I, I was always sort of sitting, listening to my father read to my mother from his latest novel, or uh-huh. sitting down at my mother's typewriter and her and and dictating to her of some silly poem something like that. <laughs> That's great. And where did you grow up, Robin? I grew up all over. Um, I was born in New York, and we moved when I was about five to southeastern Ohio, to Athens, Ohio, uh-huh. uh, where my father was the director of the Ohio University Press. Um, and um, and then we, we just moved around. My father died when I was fairly young. Very young, actually, and um, uh, and then afterwards, my mother uh, moved us from one college town to another for a few years. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. And was she teaching? Yeah, she was uh-huh. creative writing. Yeah. Creative writing. Yeah. Wow! Wow! Yeah. Yeah. So, you have um, had quite a wide career as an educator. Uh, I was really impressed with your resume when I was looking at it online. Thank you. Like. Um, and now you're here at Yale uh, National University of Singapore, NUS. How did you get here? How did you decide to come to Singapore? What well from the University of Iowa? I've um, I've long had an interest in this part of the world. Um, in 1997, I started researching a project that um, took me to the Philippines. Uh, there was a a purported anthropological hoax there that I researched, uh, wrote a book for Farris, Harris, and Giroux called, called Invented Eden. And, um, and I, before that, I had, I had been an exchange student uh, in high school in Japan. So I was long, and I had been an Asian studies major in college. Wow. And so uh-huh. I was very much interested in this part of the world for a long time. Uh, and um, I've also, I, so I, I came to Singapore a couple of times for literary festivals and went to Bali and Australia and all these places in this area at, to the point where it felt like I was almost commuting. And, I, and when this job came up, I thought, you know, I might as well just make the move and see what it's like. Mm-hmm. I, I like to challenge myself and maybe even reinvent myself every few years. Uh-huh. Um, it, though I, I loved Iowa, and uh, I'm a graduate of the Writers Workshop there, and I'll always have a tie to Iowa. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm a professor emeritus uh, there, yeah. um, but um, but I just thought this was too good an opportunity to pass up. Mm-hmm. I've enjoyed it very much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you're certainly busy with the program because you're director of the creative writing, is that right? Yeah, but I've got a lot of great colleagues who help me too. Um, and uh, it's a small program. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's very different from what I did at Iowa. This is all undergraduates. Mm very brilliant undergraduates, but they're all undergraduates. Mm -hmm. And at Iowa, it was mostly graduate students. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was, you know, it's very different, but, um, but I like it. Uh, mm -hmm. And I enjoyed my time at Iowa too, but mm -hmm. um, it just felt that, I just felt that uh, this was something that, you know, to, to have the chance to build a program from the ground up was something that I, I couldn't pass up. Mm -hmm. So it's a new school, and you're very new. I mean, just just three years old or oh, so. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Wow, wow. What a great opportunity. Yeah, yeah, it's been great. And so you have all undergraduate students at. at I do. Um, Sixty percent are Singaporean, and the rest come from about thirty other countries. Uh -huh. And they're yeah, they're really um, a bright group. Keep you on your toes. Uh -huh. and, yeah. So, yeah. it's great. Well, great. Well, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about um, your books. You've got one book that uh, I read uh, called Turning Life into Fiction, mm -hmm. which has sold over 80,000 copies, as I at last count. <laughs> <laughs> Something was, like that, yeah. Yeah, and it's become uh, pretty much a textbook for a lot of classes that are looking at fiction and taking your life into fiction and taking your reality into writing, which we all do. I mean, right. as writers, we are all um, taking our work from our lives. I mean, I don't know that there's a writer that doesn't do that. Yeah, to some extent, probably. Yeah. 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 No, it was something I, at the time, it felt like a book that no one else had written that needed to be written. I mean, it's had a long life. You know, it's been around about 22 years now. Yeah, <laughs> long time. Yeah. Yeah. I have to think of a 25th anniversary edition. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you've, you've taken, uh, I, what I loved about that book is you were able to take um, examples from your own life and then show how you eliminated some of the things and added other things and expanded yeah. on characters and so on and so forth. So Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, I mean, I was able to show some different drafts and different approaches, but not only my writing, but writing of some friends as well who are writers mm -hmm. and other people whose work I admire, mm -hmm. uh, where I could talk about the process mm -hmm. of trans transformation that's necessary to take something that happened in your life and make it into fiction. The, the biggest resistance often is the, an inability to want to, an inability to change the facts, as it were, you know. Mm -hmm. um, people will say, I want to write about this episode or that episode, and what happens is that they get stuck on what really happened. Mm -hmm. and you have to be able to just completely change things to make the story better, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really tough sometimes. Uh, it's very tough for people to think outside of experience. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that there's always this caution about taking examples from your life, uh, writing about family, writing about other people that have um, had issues or had things go on in their lives that are challenging or difficult, you know. Well, memoirists do it all the time, of course, right. and that's a big deal with memoirs. But fiction writers have the same problem. I mean, you, mm -hmm. you write about your Aunt Lily and her... Know, problems, whatever they are, physical, mental, or whatever, and Aunt Lily's going to read it, right. you know, and, and she's going to probably know who she was, that mm. even, if you may, even if you fictionalize it, mm -hmm. especially in the age of the internet, things don't escape people's notice. Right. That's not a reason to avoid writing about it, necessarily, it just means that you have to be aware of the stakes right. involved. Right. And... Um, some people are willing to make those choices and some people aren't. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, and I think that the, the irony of writing is that you're, you're always fictionalizing from your personal point of view. Well, that's true, to some yeah, extent. of course, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we're, 
we're always seeing it through our own perspective or right. our right. own eyes. So. Right, definitely. I mean, that's that's inherent in the writing process, you mm -hmm. know, that there's always going to be some fictionalizing going on. Mm -hmm. In, um, you know, even, uh, obviously, even in a memoir. Um, but to me, the often I, I make the distinctions not between truth and fiction but between um, the forms and how the form say of an essay or a memoir is different from a short story or a novel mm -hmm. and that they have different demands and that there can be essayistic novels, essayistic short stories um, and then there can be memoirs that are very narrative and then very poetic and mm -hmm. so on and I'm usually more interested in that than whether something really happened or not. I'm interested right. in the artistry behind it. Right. So I tend to think my bottom line is always if you're reading a memoir, say, and your enjoyment depends on whether it really happened or not, it can't be a very good memoir. Well. Um, or very good piece of writing because you you have to do the kind of emperor's new new clothes test. Uh -huh. So if you learned that this everything was made up in here, would it make a difference? Uh, and with some books, I I think it doesn't make a difference. In some books, it makes all the difference, and that's why we have so many fake memoirs. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. fake memoir, as soon as you find out, I mean, it, it's it's whole. Uh, appeal is often that it's unbelievable that mm -hmm. someone survived this or that, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's the Holocaust or drug addiction or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's amazing, you know, that someone survived and then you find out that no, they just made it up. Mm -hmm. um, and it's partly because, I don't know if it's just the American public, I think it's probably larger, but we're in love with redemption stories. Yeah. And, um, and redemption stories are often false. Mm -hmm. because things are not that simple mm -hmm. and uh, and it's a marketing thing as much as anything so I tend to be really skeptical of everything I read and say I'm gonna go into this looking at it uh, in terms of whether it's skillful whether mm -hmm. it's done well whether it moves me in a way that's not dependent on whether it happened or not mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know so. Yeah, and you've written both memoir and fiction and nonfiction, all of the above. So um, I, I know that your book, uh, Nola, yep. um, about your sister, yep. is that correct? Yeah. Um, that that novel or that memoir was quite a, uh, it got a lot of critical acclaim and it's it's just been reprinted, isn't that correct? Yeah, yeah, University of Iowa Press. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, that book, uh, and that book, and that was... Um, in the scheme of things, a fairly early memoir in, in the in the recent memoir boom, you know. Mm -hmm. So I wrote it in, uh, or it came out in '98 originally, mm -hmm. 1998, um, and I wrote it partly because I wasn't able to write in a way satisfyingly, to my mind, about my sister who had died. Uh, of a prescription drug overdose when she was 25 and I was 15. Mm. Um, and uh, there had just been a lot of silence about her and my family. So uh, I wanted to write, um, I wanted to write something that was honest. Mm -hmm. And I could have written something honest fictionally, but it was just too difficult for me. And mm. so I decided to really approach it uh, I wouldn't say head-on because it's in some ways a kind of uh, <clears throat> uh, a book that experiments with form in some ways and that I write uh, about my sister but I write about my whole family, this family of writers that left, that has always left uh, testaments as it were, mm -hmm. you know, and so I included not only my own writing about her but say, a short story that my, my mother had written and published uh, in the Southern Review, which was about as accurate a portrait of my sister and myself as if she had just written it as memoir. Mm -hmm. And I included in the book my sister's um, uh, autobiography, or parts of it, 
that she wrote in the last year of her life. Mm -hmm. um, she was diagnosed schizophrenic, and it was a quite, uh, you know, a muddled mm -hmm. book in many ways, her, her autobiography. But I didn't even learn about it until I started writing the book, and my mother sort of fessed up and said she had this book. Mm. And she gave it to me, and so I spliced it in. So it's, it's almost a kind of collage of different texts, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. to That's create great. a whole. Yeah. Well, when we come back, I'd like to have you read a little bit from that. Okay. Sounds good. So, uh, I'm with Robin Hemley. He's the director of the Yale NUS program in Singapore. And we're in Singapore, and we'll be right back. This is Robin White Journalist, and the show is Evolve. Evolve, nurturing the new in consciousness, the arts, and culture. With your host, Robin White Turtle Lisney. Evolve brings you people and ideas on the cutting edge of change, opening the shells of the past to move our culture into the now. We are all in great need of sustainable ideas for change. Evolve brings you the wise, the foolish, and the heart-based to help us meet the challenges of our times. Join us the third Thursday of the month at 2 p.m. Pacific Time for Evolve. Our musical selection today is called Metamorphosis 1 by Philip Glass, played by Bruce Brubaker. Hi, this is Robin White Turtle Listening, and the show's Evolve, and we are back with Robin Hemley, who is the director of the NUS, Yale NUS program, which is National University of Singapore. And uh, we're in Singapore and doing this interview, so it's kind of fun. Uh, he's also um, a professor emeritus at um, University of Iowa, a uh, writer's program, which is one of the top programs in the country, which is a pretty great place to work. And we were just talking before uh, before the break about um, your, not, your memoir, Nola, about your sister. Right. And it's a memoir of faith, art, and madness. Um, and in that 
book and one interview I read online that you said you had a, a larcenous heart. Can you describe what that meant to you? What do you mean um, by that? Well, I think a lot of writers have larcenous hearts in that um, to some degree they're always looking for, not necessarily stealing material, but, but looking at experience and mining that experience and sometimes the experience of others, you know. Mm -hmm. So I'm listening sometimes for people's stories, you know. Uh, Truman Capote, when he was, uh, uh, when he was writing, he said that, uh, you know, basically caveat emptor, that people needed to know that you know, he was a writer and that they should their secrets were not safe with him. He got into a lot of trouble for that, but mm -hmm. at the same time, I think that's true for a lot of uh, a lot of writers. Mm -hmm. And um, it's not always about what's virtuous, you know, what, what's conventionally virtuous. That writers will, uh, if a story interests them, they'll they'll do their best to write about. Now, of course, as I've gotten older, I've become a little less larcenous in that I tend to ask people's permission for things more mm -hmm. more often. Um, but I think a lot of, uh, when when you're younger and, you know, you, you're, you hear a story that's fascinating, you, you want to grab it. And that's mm -hmm. often true with one's family stories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, although I grew up in a family of writers, my, and my mother was a short story writer, she did not want me to write the memoir about her and my sister. She wanted me to fictionalize it. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, and I didn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. And so we had some conflict over that. Mm -hmm. And um, I felt that, so that's also what I mean by larcenous, mm -hmm. you know, that you're, you're often in conflict with Sometimes the people you love the most as a writer, mm -hmm. um, uh, in order to tell the story, sometimes you have to give permission to yourself to write it, even when that permission is denied by others, because mm -hmm. the permission is often withheld for reasons that have nothing to do with. I mean, they they they, they sometimes are not so much about embarrassment or or revealing some dark secret. But they're also about control sometimes, right. you know, about right. controlling the writer and saying, you know, no, um, you can't write about me because I don't have control over what you're writing. Mm -hmm. And especially with family members, that makes them <coughs> that makes them really nervous. So, um, so I often run across memoirists, young memoirists or memoirists who are just starting out, who uh, want to write something, and often what they need more than um, direction is uh, is permission. So in NOLA, you wrote about your sister, and uh, I'd love to have you read some from that book. Okay. Um, let's see. I guess I can read from uh, the prologue. Um, which kind of explains what I'm doing uh, or start trying to do in this this book. Uh -huh. um, so I'll just read the, the very beginning. Um, the prologue is called Larceny and the first section is called Admissible Evidence. My parents seemed to believe in letting everyone do whatever they wanted until they became very good at it or died. <laughs> My father, Cecil Hemley, was a poet, novelist, editor, and translator of Isaac Bashevis Singer's work. He was also a good smoker, and that's what he died of when I was seven. My older brother, Jonathan, used to be good at everything, from languages to sports to the sciences, but over the last 20 years, he's specialized in Orthodox Judaism and lives with his eight children and wife in LA. My sister, Nola, was good at everything, too art and language, but especially things of the spirit, and that, in a sense, is what she eventually died from. My mother, Elaine Gottlieb, is a short story writer and teacher. She's good at surviving. As for myself, I've always had a larcenous heart. 
As I get older, the thief diminishes, but still there is something inside me essentially untrustworthy. Someone hard and calculating, egged on by the deaths of my father and sister, someone who will not always accept responsibility for his actions. I remember a camp counselor at Granite Lake Camp in New Hampshire telling me one night that he was on to me. He called me conniving. I pretended I didn't know what he was talking about and was silent. He was one of the only people who ever saw through me like that, or at least one of the few who ever told me directly. I wonder about confession, this nagging need. When I confess, I make myself vulnerable. Some people will like me for it, and others will arm themselves with my admissions and hurl them back. One time I told my mother what this counselor had said about me, and the next time we argued, she said, your counselor was right, you are conniving. After that, I resolved to bury myself deeper, to hide this other person where even I wouldn't be able to recognize him. Sometimes I think it's too late, that he has already stolen away the things my sister gave me, things of the imagination and spirit that he pawned to support his habit. <laughs> so that's the very beginning. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Would you read um, part of the, the, the story, like in the part of the memoir in the middle of it. In the middle of Yeah, the or book? a little farther down. Just I just want to get a feeling for uh, what you've been writing what you were writing about, why you chose to write this book. Oh, okay. Okay. Because I feel like you're this is the you know, when books are so personal okay. and they're they have to do with huge uh, challenges that we run across okay. in our lives. Yeah. Okay, well, this, this part comes, it's, again, part of the prologue. Um, the prologue's kind of um, structured almost like a court case. And the reason is that uh, when I was uh, maybe 15 years old, no, sorry, about 17 years old, just uh-huh. a couple of years after my sister died, I was at my grandmother's house, and I found a, um, I found a, some court documents uh, that pertain to my sister, and I didn't actually um, look at them. And I took them actually from my uh, grandmother's drawer without telling anyone, and I kept them. And it was only about 20 years later, when I was starting to write the book, that I uh, looked at them for the first time. Mm-hmm. And so that was part of the whole larcenous thing. Mm-hmm. And they pertain to who my sister was, who my mother was and and my mother's first marriage so um, this part um, and there was a court case involved Mm -hmm. so this was um, from that inadmissible evidence I'm looking through a drawer of a desk in my room in my grandmother's house I'm 17 and I'm looking for something to steal loose change would be great or an antique paperweight or letter opener Inside one of the drawers, I come across a legal-sized document with a rusty paper clip attached. It's titled, Point of Error Number One, and reads, quote, the finding that no marriage between Elliot Chess and Elaine Gottlieb, also known as Elaine Hemley, was ever entered into at any time or at any place is contrary to the evidence and against the weight of the evidence. Appellees proved the contract of marriage. That's as far as I read. I'm not sure what this document is or how it pertains to me, but I know I have to have it, and I know that I can't tell anyone about it. It has something to do with Nola, who's been dead three years. Discovery. Uncovering the facts, not even the facts, but the feelings of my sister and mother's lives has become a detective story for me. It started out before I even knew it was a detective story, when I was 17 and found some court documents about my mother and Nola's father, Elliot Chess, in a drawer at my grandmother's house. The remarkable thing about finding these documents was that I never told anyone I'd found them and never read them until now. For years, I kept them in a box and never looked at them. But now that I've read them, now that I understand things about my mother's life, things perhaps she wouldn't want me to know, the revelations follow quickly, one upon the other, And the more I uncover, the more I realize that one of these days I'm going to have to tell my mother about the court papers I found. Eventually I'll confess. But the documents keep multiplying. Everyone in my family, or connected with it, it seems, has written about the events I want to write about. 
although not in a way that gives an overall picture of who we are. Every day I seem to learn about new documents. I'm drowning in them. My mother tells me little by little about their existence, almost as though she's teasing me. But this is how she's always been. Rarely does she volunteer information about her life, although if asked a direct question, she'll sometimes answer. She's known a lot of famous writers and artists. Isaac Singer, Joseph Heller, Robert Motherwell, Weldon Keyes, Louise Bogan, Conrad Aiken, but she almost never mentions any of them. It's not important to her. My mother has kept a journal for years. I never knew this until I stumbled upon the fact, New Year's Eve, 1994, when I asked her nonchalantly whether she'd ever kept a journal. Sure, I've been keeping a journal since I was 16. I was stunned. Do you have anything from your time in Mexico with your first husband? Sure, I have a lot about Mexico. I need it all, I told her. She laughed. Do you know where it is? I was just looking at it the other day. Mom, I'm always amazed how I just find out these things about you by chance. She laughed again. That night, she and I sat on her bed and sorted through her journal. Hundreds of loosely typed pages dating from the 1930s. She let me have whatever I wanted, but she also said, I don't think you, need, you should know everything. I have to, I said, half laughing. I want to know everything. I keep thinking that it's my, my right to know all this, that she should volunteer everything she knows, as though this is a court case and she'll be accountable for what she doesn't divulge. It says something new about my relationship with my mother, that for years everything was too painful to divulge to me, but now nothing is. My mother, since learning about my project, has been sending me steady streams of old photos, journal excerpts, letters. Well, you got her on board eventually, huh? <laughs> I did. Um, it's sort of a classic uh, biographer's story in that often when people are writing about a person, the person essentially wants full control. And they might even say, no, I'm not going to let you uh, write about me. But eventually they start realizing that maybe it's better to try to control what you're going to write about them. So, And that works with your parents, too. And so my mother actually started sending me things that she had previously said no, she wouldn't. Um, so. Oh, great. Great. Well, we're talking to Robin Hemley, and the show is Evolve, and this is Robin Whiteter listening, and we'll be right back. This next piece is called Metamorphosis One by Ira Glass, and it's played by Bruce Brubaker. Hi, this is your host for Evolve, Robin White Turtle Listening. 
And I wanted to share with you a few of the other things that I do in the world beside the radio show. In addition, I'm an energy medicine practitioner in the Bay Area and across the country by phone. And I work uh, through East West Bookshop in Mountain View, California. So you can always find me there on Fridays. In addition, I have um, five books. Uh, four of them are nonfiction, and one is a fiction book uh, that's actually based on facts called Poems for the Lost Deer. The other books are Heart Path, Heart Path Handbook, and prior to that, Sacred Living and Dancing Up the Moon. Um, my recent, more recent books, Heart Path and Heart Path Handbook, uh, teach people self-love, and this is the foundation of my practice, that love does heal all things. You can find out more uh, about my work on my website, www.thecenterforthesoul.com, and uh, you can also check out the books on www.bluebonebooks.com. And now we'll go back to the show. Hi, this is Robin White Turtle Listening. We're back, and the show is Evolve. And I'm with a Robin Hemley, who is the, the director of the writing program at National University of Singapore, Yale, uh, NUS, it's called. And uh, he's the former uh, nonfiction writing director of University of Iowa uh, writing program. And uh, he's also a writer of 11 books. Um, one of his more recent books is called Reply All, and we're going to uh, continue reading some of his work, and then we'll talk some more about what he's doing professionally with different programs that he has. So welcome, Robin. Thank you. Yeah. So um, in Reply All, it's a collection of short stories. A lot of them you've had previously published. Yeah. Um, uh, tell me a little bit about this collection and how it came to be and how you... Uh, how you gathered them? Did you have the intention of gathering them into a book at some point? Yeah, or? I always do. I mean, this is my third or fourth um, collection, depending how you count it, of short stories. And I, uh, my first collection of short stories, which was called All You Can Eat, um, came out uh, when I was uh, just, I guess, thirty, and um, and it was my it was my first book. And all along, I've been a short story writer as along with being a nonfiction writer and uh, and novelist um, and I was uh, I, I love the form of the short story I love reading them and I love writing them uh, I'm not writing so many uh, these days but um, you know I've, I always have the aim of putting them together at some point I think I'm kind of a a comic writer. I write. <laughs> I would agree. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to write uh, fairly ironically, and my stories sometimes tread on the absurd. Mm -hmm. um, though I try to make them somewhat grounded in reality as we know it. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, there just kind of came a time when I thought, okay, well, it's time for a new collection. And I didn't put everything that I've published in it. I don't just throw them all in. I try to have stories that, that fit together. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, the, the title story, Reply All, was a, has been a popular story. It's been anthologized a lot, and it seemed like a good title for, um, for the collection, mm -hmm. set the kind of tone mm -hmm. that I wanted to set. Mm -hmm. Well, on the cover you have, um, there's a photograph of, of insects with pins through their backs, kind of nailing down different species. And yeah, it's and funny. It's a very funny kind of ironic uh, photograph to have on the on it, the cover. It's funny, but well, a former student of mine um, did the cover of that. Oh. But it's funny because the first collection I wrote, "All You Can Eat," um, I I remember, and I hadn't actually been thinking of it when I uh, selected the cover, but but. Um, the London Times had reviewed the book, and and one of the things I remember, the reviewer said that I liked to um, uh, pin my characters down and watch them squirm. Uh. <laughs> so I, I thought that was. I think that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Would you read some from Reply All? Because I, sure. I think it's such a great book. 
Thank you. Um, sure, I'll read from a story of mine called The Nineteenth Jew. Um, okay. At her meeting with the associate dean, Edith Margaretten asked the administrator, a woman in her mid-forties, about the climate for Jews at Notre Dame. Oh, it's fine, she said. I'm Methodist myself. Ah, Edith said. The woman flipped through the pages of a scrapbook-sized volume. Edith looked down at her lap and smoothed out her wool skirt, which she had bought specifically for the interview. It was gray with little flecks of brown and itchy. The dress looked Catholic on the rack, but she regretted buying it now. She placed her hands on her knees and regarded the associate dean while the woman flipped. Edith could hardly keep her eyes open. The woman bored her, and she'd slept terribly the night before. The Morris Inn on campus had the skinniest beds, as hard as pallets, designed so that no one could possibly sleep or consider sinning in them. <laughs> Over every door in her suite, where normally one might expect to see a smoke detector, a cross hung, or a swooning Jesus, or a proud Mary, Edith had unpacked, humming, left a good job in the city, working for the man every night and day, but no smoke detectors. Yes, we have 17 Jews on campus, the woman announced, pointing at a page somewhere toward the middle of this mysterious book. What's one more, Edith said. Exactly, the woman said, lifting her hand, palm up, and giving Edith a wide open expression devoid of irony. You really keep track, Edith asked, but it wasn't meant to be a question. In a book. This seemed to catch the associate dean by surprise. She sat up straight in her chair and locked her eyes on Edith. Edith wondered if this woman had ever read one of her books, if she even read books anymore, if she knew who Edith was. Going into the interview, she had asked the English department chair, a Milton scholar named Dan Massey, what an associate dean was. The real dean had been off campus, and so they'd come up with this locale Methodist version. He'd leaned over conspiratorially and whispered, a mouse studying to become a rat. There might be more, the woman said. These are the ones you know of, Edith said. The woman closed her scrapbook. This is a Catholic institution, and part of our mission is to provide an exceptional education within a Catholic framework. But Notre Dame is known for its ecumenical atmosphere. The Catholic faculty hovers around 51%. Edith smiled. They hover, too. There was no possibility, she decided, of ever working for such a place. They probably wanted to hold the line, in any case, at 17 Jews. <laughs> That's great. Thank how you. did you get, how did that story come about? Was there, was there someone you knew that actually went to Notre Dame or was there well, a school like it? Actually, it's a kind of funny story in and of itself. Um, it has a kind of semi-autobiographical uh, beginning in that uh, I was once um, interviewed for uh, the head of creative writing at Notre Dame. Oh. And I met such a character as this associate dean who showed me a book and said there are, you know, 17 Jews on campus uh, when I said I was Jewish, you know. Uh -huh. And um, it turned out, though, it was, it was a crazy interview. I was voted by the English department to be the candidate of choice unanimously. And then the real dean turned it back and said, um, and went with someone who was Catholic uh, rather than Jewish. Oh, my gosh. And it was a crazy thing, and people said I could have had a lawsuit and all this stuff, but I didn't want to become a litigant, a professional litigant, so I just kind of let it go and decided to get my revenge in a story. Um, <laughs> and it's not about me. I took a character who's sort of based on uh, sort of a combination of my mother, who was a writer, and maybe um, Joyce Carol Oates and Cynthia Ozick, and sort of mashed them all together uh -huh. um, and put them in this. And, and and unlike me, the character gets the job at Notre Dame, uh -huh. and it's in. And I combined another anecdote. Um, what, what happened, which was kind of amazing, uh, was I submitted it, the, the story to um, a contest called the Nelson Algren Award. Um, and uh, if run by the Chicago Tribune, and um, I, I won, I won the award, um, and uh, it was a, it was a real honor. It was honored. I was uh, judged by uh, uh, among the judges were Richard Russo and um, George Plimpton, and anyway, they gave me a big banquet, 
uh, in Chicago and published the story in the Chicago Tribune, mm-hmm. which is fairly close to South Bend, Indiana, where Notre Dame was. Right. And so, so everyone at Notre Dame read the story. <laughs> and uh, one of the English department members called me up the next day and said, oh, this is, this is fun. This is great. I mean, because the English department actually had wanted me uh, to, to have the job. But I thought, well, this is perfect revenge. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes you can get it in other ways than yeah. lawsuits. Yeah, exactly. Country, yeah. So, yeah. Too many lawsuits. Oh, that's funny. That's great. Well, do you have another story there that you'd like to share with us? Because uh, there's, there's such a variety. I noticed that a lot of them have to do with uh, kind of death or the edge of death too, you know, walking between worlds. And I, that's a topic that's quite fascinating to me. Yes. Um, because of my profession and what I do for a living. So I, I think it's, it's really interesting how you frame some of, some of these stories. Uh, uh, yeah, I guess there, I mean, there's, um, always that preoccupation. Um, I, when I was a, when I was young, I had a lot of um, deaths in my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I suppose that's something that always... Um, kind of intrigues. Yeah, it intrigues one. So I have one story that's um, about a game show that happens, uh, uh, sort of bringing people back to life, and uh, not a game show, a talk show, and people, uh, they have guests who are dead on the show, uh, but they come back to life for the for the show, and this one... And character has uh, wants to have Dean Martin on the show, and and it's you know it's fun. I, I as I said, I sort of tread with on the absurd. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I maybe I'll read a little bit from the um, title story. Yes, I'd love I'd love to have you read that. Yeah. Um, part of it. Yeah, this is called um, Reply All, and um, uh, yeah, I just it was sort of early days of email and when everyone was hitting reply all on various things and I did the same uh, once and not on, not with really horrible um, uh, results but it was still embarrassing it was just some uh, I, I had sent I had been to someone's dinner party and uh, and I had arrived late and I was apologizing to her for arriving late and I sent it out to this entire organization. Uh, and it could have been horrible if it had been something private, but it yes. wasn't, you know. But I just thought, what if it were something really horrible? So, uh, so I wrote this uh, story called Reply All and I'll, I'll read you the setup. Two, Poetry Association of the Western Suburbs Listserv from Lisa Drago Hars. Subject, next meeting. Date, July 17th. Hi all, I want to confirm that our next meeting will be held in the Sir Francis Drake Room at the Bensonville Hampton Inn on August 3rd. Minutes from our last meeting and an agenda for the next meeting will follow shortly. Peace and Poetry, Lisa Drago Hars, Secretary, pause. Two, Poetry Association of the Western Suburbs Listserv from Michael Stroud, subject re, next meeting, date, July 17th. Dearest Lisa, first of all, I love your mole and don't find it unsightly in the least. There is absolutely no reason for you to be ashamed of it, though it might be a good idea to have it checked out. But please don't remove it. Heaven forbid, my darling. As I recall, I gave you considerable pleasure when I sucked and licked it like a nipple. A nipple it is in size and shape, if not placement. That no one else knows your mole's position on your body other than your benighted husband, poor Limp Richard, that sonnet of a bitch, as you call him, is more the pity. If Marvel had known such a mole, he undoubtedly would have added an extra stanza to his poem. But my coy mistress is not so terribly coy as all that, if I remember correctly, and how could I forget? You were not at all what I expected in bed, not that I had any expectations at all, when you started massaging my crotch with your foot underneath the table in the Sir Francis Drake room, I was at first shocked. For a moment, I thought perhaps the unseen massager was none other than our esteemed president, the redoubtable Darcy McPhee, makeup and wardrobe courtesy of Yoda. Is that terrible of me? I have nothing personal against her, really, except for her execrable taste in poetry and the fact that you should be president, not she, and her breath and that habit of pulling her nose when she speaks, and that absolutely horrific expression of hers, 
twee, as in, I find his poetry just so twee. What does twee mean, and why does she keep inflicting it upon us? So imagine my horror when I felt this foot in my crotch and I stared across the table at the two of you, she twitching like a slug that's had salt poured on it, and you, immobile except for your Mont Blanc pen, taking down the minutes. Ah, to think that the taking down of minutes could be such an erotic activity, but in your capable hands it is. To think that mere hours later it would be my Mont Blanc you'd grasp so firmly, guiding me into the lyrical book of your body. But initially I thought the worst, that it was Darcy, not you. My only consolation was the idea that at least I had her on a sexual harassment suit, her being my boss, after all, at Roosevelt. Another reason I thought it was her and not you is because I know you're married, and she isn't, and I knew that Richard is a member of our esteemed organization, too, and he was in the room, seated beside you, no less. It was only that sly smile in your eyes that tipped me off. I, too, love the danger that illicit public sex brings, as long as it's kept under the table, so to speak. And yes, maybe someday we can make love on that very same table in that the Sir Francis Drake room, my darling. But I must ask you, sweetheart, where did you learn that amazing trick? I've seen people wiggle their ears before, but never that. What amazing talent. And such a pity that this is not something you bring out at parties or poetry readings to awe the dumb masses. Would Darcy find that too twee? I think not. Thinking of you now makes me so hot I want to nibble you. I want to live in your panties. I want to write a series of odes to you equal in number to every lucky taste bud on my tongue, every nerve ending. No, not endings, but beginnings on my body that live in rapture of your every pore. No, not poor, but rich. I'm rich. I make metaphors of your muscles, of your thighs, of the fecund wetness bursting with your being and effulgence. I must swallow now. I must breathe, I must take my leave, my darling, and go now to relieve myself of my private thoughts of you and you alone, with undying love and erotic daydreams. Mikey. P.S. Do you think you could get away for an evening next week? Could you be called away from Richard for an emergency meeting of the Public Relations Committee? To pause, listserv, from Darcy McPhee. Subject, re, re, next meeting. Date, July 17th. I am traveling now, and will not be answering emails until I return on July 21st. Thanks. Darcy. To pause listserv from Sam Fulgram, Jr. Subject, re, 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 next meeting. Date, July 17th. Whoa, boy. Do you realize you just sent out your love note to the entire Poetry Association of the Western Suburbs listserv? Cheers, Sam. P.S. That mole. You've got my imagination running wild. As long as the entire organization knows about it now, would you mind divulging its location? I'd sleep better at night knowing it. So I think I'll stop there. Yeah. It goes on, though. That's enough of a tease. It's a snowball. Yes, it is. It is. It's a wonderful story. I found I found that just hysterical because... Uh, you know the academia so well, you know, and the, and these things can happen so easily because people do it all sure. the time. Yeah, you know, so people come up to me at readings afterwards, or or I'll see someone in the audience with a kind of deer and headlights look, and I think, oh, this happened to that person. <laughs> <laughs> and I get people who say, oh, uh, there was a terrible incident on campus like that. Uh -huh. So, yeah, uh, so yeah, you, you hit a nerve there yeah. for sure with people. Well, that's great. Well. This this story, beside winning this award, you've you've had um, a lot of these stories have been previously published, or at least yes. all of them. Yeah. So yeah. they're found also in different journals and things. Yeah, so. yeah, that one's been anthologized a lot. Uh -huh. and, uh, yeah. yeah, and there's a there's a, a somewhere on YouTube. There's me reading the whole story. Uh huh. Uh huh. Great. So, great. But people should buy the book. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yes, yes. The real hardcover. Yeah. yeah so. Um, well, thank you for reading that. Uh, sure, and, pleasure. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and we'll come right back. And this is Robin White Turtle Listening. The show is Evolve, and I'm with Robin Hemley, who is uh, the director of the writing program at the Yale National University of Singapore. And we'll be right back. Evolve, nurturing the new in consciousness, the arts, and culture, with your host, Robin White Turtle Lisney. Evolve brings you people and ideas on the cutting edge of change opening the shells of the past to move our culture into the now. We are all in great need of sustainable ideas for change. 
Evolve brings you the wise, the foolish, and the heart-based to help us meet the challenges of our times. Join us the third Thursday of the month at 2 p.m. Pacific Time for Evolve. Hi, we're back. This is Robin White Turtle Listening. The show is Evolve, and I'm with Robin Hemley, who is the director of the writing program at Yale and U.S. in Singapore. And we were just uh, reading some of his work, but Robin, you've got so many other things going on. Tell us about some of the other programs sure. that you're teaching and involved in. Sure. Uh, well, I do travel around a lot and do a lot of workshops around the world, really. Um, I just got back from Australia, uh, where I'm sort of also a visiting professor at RMIT University in Melbourne, and I do a number of workshops for them. And uh, uh, and this uh, summer, North American summer anyway, I'm uh, in July, I'm going to be um, doing a private uh, retreat uh, slash workshop on a, an island uh, in Indonesia, actually a private island with... 15 uh, sea villas right over the water uh, with my friend Shu Si, who's um, uh, an American writer based in Hong Kong, uh, and she's a novelist and short story writer. And we're doing this writer writing retreat for about 15 people, um, and um, uh, July 24th to the 28th, uh, we have a... a an organization called Authors at Large, uh, and it's we actually have a few spots left. So if anyone's interested, until <laughs> March twenty eighth, we've got some spots left. It's uh, aalauthors.com, and uh, all the information's on that. And then I'm giving some workshops at the University of Iowa in the summer, and also at Rutgers University uh, in New Jersey. Oh, great. So it's a fairly busy summer. I'm on sabbatical this semester. So oh, yeah. tell uh, us about your sabbatical because you're doing a sabbatical in Australia. Is that well, right? I was, I just of... came back from Australia. I was uh -huh. there for six weeks. Uh -huh. Um, and, um, and then I'm going actually soon to, uh, just write in a place in Italy called the Baliasco Foundation, which is this great, uh, uh, villa, uh, outside of Genoa. And, uh, I was lucky enough to get a spot there, and it's a real, you know, just nothing to do but write for a month. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it, because that's, of course, the rarest commodity for a writer is time, yes. you know, and, and, and having not only the time, but just that free space, uncluttered mm -hmm. uh, mind. I think one of the, the difficulties for me, and for a lot of writers now, for or just people in general is to sort of unclutter your mind mm -hmm. in a way to, to, to be free to write. And that means, you know, turning off Facebook and not responding to email and doing that kind of thing. So yeah. that's, that's, it's something when I first started out that I never had to worry about. When you went away somewhere, you were away. Yes. <laughs> and now you're always connected. Yes, yes, yes. Well, and then you have a family, so you have a large family, Absolutely. so yeah. you've got kids and things, and that's... I bring them along when I can, yeah. you know, I try, uh, I've got, right now I'm traveling around with my, um, uh, one of my older daughters, and uh, uh, my younger daughters and my wife are uh, right now in, in, in Iowa, we kept our, our house there, and uh, uh -huh. we, just, we love Iowa City, and... Uh -huh. um, uh, and yeah, so I'm I'm always sort of a uh, we're, we're always in different places, and uh -huh. uh, but we come together quite a quite a lot as well, and, and travel a lot together. Uh -huh. so. Yeah, that's yeah. wonderful. So tell me about the program in Rutgers. That, that sounds interesting. Or... Oh well, it's a it's a, a writers conference that they do every year mm -hmm. um, in June, um, and. They invited me. Actually, I, it's the third time I've been invited, and only the first time I've been able to come. Because both times there have been minor disasters uh, that have pre prevented me from getting there. One time that I was just on the plane, it was getting ready to take off, uh, and a windstorm came uh, came up and um, bashed the luggage cart into the plane and disabled it, 
and we had to get off, and I couldn't make my flight. And so, I, so this is actually the third time they've invited me. So I'm hoping this one will actually work out. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. Well, that's great. And then you're doing. Uh, are you doing part of the program, uh, the summer program at the University of Iowa this summer? Or? Yes, I am. Um, uh -huh. I'm going to be teaching um, a course on hybrid forms. Um, oh. They have the, the summer um, writers festival goes all summer long and uh, I'm doing a week in June um, teaching this um, just hybrid forms on appropriation like mm -hmm. my email story taking a, a form that isn't usually used in a story and then um, uh, writing writing something using that form it's really fun I love doing that I love taking um, uh, I love reading stories or essays even that uh, borrow forms from 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 other things. Uh, there's a whole book of it. My friend, uh, the writer David Shields, uh, edited a book called Fakes, and it's all these. Um, the, and actually, I think Reply All's in that one too. Um, uh -huh. uh, that anthology, but it came out a couple of years ago. And uh -huh. so I'm using, I'm I'm sort of basing the workshop on that. Uh huh. Uh -huh. That idea. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah, it's it's kind of like uh, poets writing. It's not too dissimilar, anyway, to poets writing in forms, mm -hmm. uh, to have an essayist or a, a short story writer take something that's, you know, uh, a recipe or a guidebook or, mm -hmm. or a last will and testament and mm -hmm. turning it into a story form, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. it, it, it creates a kind of, um, it, it creates a kind of tension in how to write a story using something that wouldn't normally be used for a story mm -hmm. and they, they often are a little absurd mm -hmm. often ironic and mm -hmm. funny mm -hmm. and so I'm attracted to them <laughs> uh, yeah well that sounds interesting I'm as a I'm a poet primarily but I've written all kinds of things um, but I I'm I'm just venturing into the world of novel writing and uh, short story writing and things so I'm really fascinated how different forms are used in that in those genres and I don't I don't really I'm just exploring and learning so well there are a lot of great books that are coming out from uh, often from independent presses mm -hmm. around the US and elsewhere um, of such forms my friend Michael Martone for instance is a wonderfully inventive funny writer and Michael wrote a book called Michael Martone, which is, you know, in the backs of um, literary magazines and other magazines, they have the contributor's notes. Mm -hmm. And this is a book completely of contributor's notes, where he wrote um, all these contributor's notes um, about Michael Martone. And he changed them, he fictionalized them all, so they've become kind of, I and mean, they've become insane and crazy, but uh -huh. they're, it's really a funny book. Uh -huh. So, yeah, so I, I'm, it's, it's something that... Um, a lot of writers are experimenting. Uh -huh. Yeah, there's a lot of experimenting cross-genre mm -hmm. in all different forms of writing, I think, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I love, for instance, uh, erasure poetry and erasure essays and mm -hmm. things like that, where they people take a book, um, and uh, my friend, the poet Mary Rufel, uh, was a fairly early practitioner of this. She, mm -hmm. uh, I, she was at least the person who introduced me to erasure poetry where she would just take a book and erase everything except the words that she wanted on the page and it was a uh, it was both an artifact and um and a new expression and mm -hmm. uh and some of them are quite they're again they're often quite funny but they're 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 also lovely yeah, yeah. and they can be really profound and uh, i know one of my former instructors chong trang um, does a lot of erasure poetry, and it, that was uh, pretty interesting to see at Mills. With you know, the erasure was part of kind of what we experimented with. Yeah, I love it. And it's yeah. a great form to teach with. Uh, again, a, a poet I know named Collier Nogues, who uh, is in Hong Kong. She grew up in Japan on uh, military bases, and so she's taken these manuals that are sort of military manuals and made erasure poems. Uh, uh, about them and they're, they're wonderful you know I think uh, I just uh, I think that uh, we you know that kind of formal experimentation is really something that is uh, that's not fully uh, utilized by uh, 
prose writers. Mm-hmm. You know, it's done by uh, poets quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's almost comes. It's almost de rigueur. You know, it's mm-hmm. part of the game. But, mm-hmm. but uh, it's only. And I think essayists now too are uh, using a lot of um, formal invention too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think the memoir writing is a, a, another form that's kind of getting experiment. There's some experimenting going on yeah. with memoir as well, and you've done quite a bit of memoir yeah. work, so yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, there is definitely a lot of experimentation mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been so great to talk to you. Is there really anything nice else you wanted to, you to share with uh, with my audience? And uh, these will go out. This will go out all over the place. So um, I'd be happy to. No, I, I just uh, it's it's a pleasure to talk to you and thanks for uh having me on your show um i guess if you're interested in my work you can also find it at robinhemley.com yes yeah and then your uh workshop uh in indonesia yeah yeah yeah. that's going to be a lot of fun and uh we've already got a a good group of people coming so Uh, i'd be interested if if anyone's interested in coming um get in touch with me robinhemley at gmail.com Okay, great, great. Well, thanks so much for the interview. Um, I've been talking to Robin Hemley. He's the director of the writing program at Yale NUS in Singapore. And he's the former uh, director of the nonfiction program at the University of Iowa. And he's going to be teaching this summer in a variety of places. And you can check it out on his website, robinhemley.com. And thanks so much. And we'll, uh, the show is evolved, and this is Robin White Turtle Listening. Thank you for joining us. This program was brought to you by Firefly Willows L I V E. We hope you enjoyed the show. This is Deb Carousella. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L I V E for Convergence with John Carousella, Sunday morning at 10:30 a.m.